you. Acts chapter 7. Okay. <laughs> That's supposed to stop all that. That's why this. I might not have this thing in all the way. It might be the problem, actually. Acts chapter 7, uh, let's start reading there in verse number 19. He's covered in the defense, this is part 2. We've looked at the first 18 verses already in Stephen's defense of the gospel. Now we come to verse 19, he's covered Abraham, he's talked about Joseph, and now he's going to dive into Moses. It says in verse number 19, the same dealt subtlety with our kindred, and evil entreated and evil entreated our fathers, so that they cast out their young children to the end they might not live. In which time Moses was born, was extremely fair, and nourished up in his father's house three months. When he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of Egypt, Egypt of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and in deeds. And he was full 40 years old. It came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him. That was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed, now get this, for he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. But they understood not. And the next day... He shewed himself unto them as they strove. There's two neighbors fighting. And when he would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, your brethren, why do you wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst, uh, didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of, uh, of Midian, where he begot two sons. And when 40 years expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai the angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight, and he drew near to behold it. And the voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Then Moses trembled and durst not behold. Then said the Lord, and put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people, which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groanings and am come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send thee into Egypt. This Moses, whom they refused, referring back to the earlier example, saying, who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel, which appeared to him in the bush. I'm going to make it really clear during the message, but you can see what he is doing with Moses right now in relation to Jesus Christ in his argument as to who Christ is and how he is not a blasphemer of Moses. He brought them out after that he showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. That is that Moses, which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up 
of your brethren like unto me, him shall you hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. To whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt, saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we will not what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Verse 42, boy, that's a dangerous place to be. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have you offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, you took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god Remphon, figures which you made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, and he had appointed speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen which also our fathers that came after brought it with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles whom God drave out uh, before the face of our fathers unto the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. How be it? The Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as, uh, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have, you, have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, whom ye have now, whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law, who have received the law by the dispensation of angels, and have not kept it. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. Lord, I ask your blessing upon the message tonight. Lord, I pray that you be glorified and honored in all that's said and dead. Please control what I say and how I say it. May, may this truly be a help to us. Please draw us closer to you. I pray this would be a true help in our life. Uh, Lord, meet the needs that are here. Strengthen us as a church. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's, let's dive into this message. There's a lot, a lot here of what's taking place, and we're going to get through this quickly. Um, now, we have to go back into chapter 6. We're not going to turn. That. That's, that's, that's when we're introduced to this man, Stephen. Remember, the church had issues coming up. Uh, the, the church has a tremendous influence taking place in Israel, especially in Jerusalem. By the time you get to chapter 6, the membership, we don't have an exact amount because they stopped counting, the Bible tells us. After so many converts were coming and we had 5,000, 3,000. There's probably somewhere in the neighborhood, though, of 20,000 who have converted to Christ. Now, keep in mind where they have to meet. They're meeting in the temple in the courtyards. That's the meeting place. Now, what, another way that the Lord is going to use Stephen's sermon is to realize, wait, we don't have to meet at the temple. You're going to see that change. It's, it's going to be a huge part because of the persecution, but also because of what the truth that Stephen is preaching. We don't have to have the temple. And so six were introduced to that the, the, they have an issue come up between the, the widows of, 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 of those who were... Um, 
of Grecian and those who are the Hebrews, those who spoke Greek and those who grew up in Israel. And so, and so to set up, they, they found those seven men of good report, and we're, we're learning about two of them. Stephen, next chapter, we're learning about Philip. Stephen, though, is an amazing man. One of the first messages we got into his life, we saw that how we certainly need more men like Stephen. He is the transition between Peter's ministry and Paul's ministry. He's an incredible man. We find him in chapter 6, he starts preaching in the synagogue that belonged to Saul, who would become the Apostle Paul. We know that he's, more than likely, he is present because he's going to be there for the stoning of Stephen that's getting ready to take place. So when the debate arises in the synagogue, you have to understand, it is very likely that the person that is debating with Stephen is in fact Saul. If he's not debating, he's hearing it. Could you imagine those two minds going at it? The Apostle Paul and Stephen? Stephen was, you know, similar to Moses, gifted in, in power and words and deeds. You find somebody who's gifted in power and words and deeds, you have something. He, he's hearing Stephen. We don't know. It does not tell us in the chapter what Stephen was presenting in the synagogue. But no doubt dealing with the gospel of who Christ was being the Messiah. No doubt of, of salvation by grace through faith. No doubt probably getting into the purpose uh, of the law itself. That would one day, when it comes to Acts chapter 9, Paul thinking back to what he heard in Stephen's defense in chapter 7. As well as Stephen was presenting in the gospel as those goads that were, that were hitting him as he was remembering the words of Stephen. And him demonstrating who Christ was. As we looked last week, how he was a type of Joseph. Rejected of his brethren. Paul heard all these things. He is very likely the one that was trying to argue with him. But what does the Bible say? They could not resist the wisdom and the spirit with what she, with what she spoke. It was incredible. Both those go together. It's not just that you present truth. It's how you present truth. Stephen wasn't presenting truth just to show he was right. He went to the synagogue that day to try and convince men who Christ was. <clears throat> Once they could not resist it, they, they, they stirred the crowd up and they have, them arrest, they have Stephen arrested. Again, this is coming to the end of chapter 6. So we, we, we talked about, is it, we, there's a whole other sermon on that. You can go back and look at that. <clears throat> But they have him arrested. Stephen finds himself before the Sanhedrin, before the high priest, and he is charged with several crimes. All of them carry the death penalty. There was blaspheme of God, blaspheme of Moses, blaspheme of the law, and blaspheme of the temple. He has to answer those charges. What we're reading here in chapter 7 is his defense. He has no attorney. He has no lawyer. He is standing alone before the Sanhedrin, Giving his defense to the charge. Remember, remember they looked upon him and they saw his face. Look, look, at that. look back at the end of chapter 7. Um, chapter 6, excuse me. Um, where am I at here? Verse 15. And all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him. This is his trial. They've, 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 they've brought in their false witnesses to lie. Uh, to accuse them of, of blasphemy. Uh, of, of blasphemy. And verse 15, and all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on his face as it had been the face of an angel. 
So here he is facing charges that bring the death penalty. They've already threatened death. They've already beaten the apostles. And this man, really for the most part, think about this. This guy's fairly a new convert. You know, relatively speaking, he, he could have been saved all that long. It's just so different to the preaching we have today. From the Joel Olsteins and the guy that's in Charlotte, whatever his name is. I can think of his name now. And, and how different it is. And how the preaching is so man-centered nowadays. <clears throat> Everything's centered around us instead of centered around God. It's true. The preaching, it's even true of the direction of music nowadays in Christian circles. It's centered on us. And how God can help us. Listen, he can. I'm not, I'm not negating that. The Bible deals with that. But I have news for you. It's all about God. It's not about you. When, we, when, we, when I talked about that verse, I, wanna, I wanted to bring it again a quote from one of the commentators about Stephen's face being as an angel. I, I loved how he put it. He said this. He said, in their minds, he looked like he had transcended above it all. He looked as if he were pure and holy and virtuous. All of his power in the Holy Spirit, all of his wisdom in the Holy Spirit, all of his grace in the Holy Spirit, all of his faith, all of it came out on his face. He looked angelic. I mean, you could just see them. They're not used to men standing there with such boldness and peace. That's telling you right there, what's getting ready to happen, come out of his mouth, is all of God. He's ready. He's ready. And so we looked at the first part of his message a few weeks ago. And he, he went into Abraham. He started with Abraham, then into Joseph. With Abraham, he was showing God's sovereignty. How God never restricted revelation to a special person or a special place, which was their claim. How Abraham was to be a pilgrim, a stranger, not rooted in one place. How we're to have faith in God as his point and not an institution. It was really convicting as, they, as he talked about it. Because the point being, you better be willing to move when God moves. Not get glued to a tradition, especially since so much of, uh, of how they worship was simply a shadow of what was to come. And now the shadow was done away because the Lamb of God has now come. Then he used Joseph, which was incredible. I really enjoyed going over that. Using Joseph, think how convicted, he demonstrated how Joseph was his life, how God was using it as an illustration of the life of Jesus Christ. How he was hated of his brethren, just like those men hated Christ. How, was, how Joseph's brothers conspired to kill him, just like the Jews conspired to kill Christ. They resented Joseph over his goodness, the same was true of the resentment of Christ. Joseph was falsely accused and arrested. Jesus was falsely accused and arrested. Joseph was put in a place of death, but it could not hold him. Jesus was put in a place, of course, of the death, but it could not hold him. Joseph was exalted and given a name above every name. The name that was given, given to him, Zaphnath Paneah, Savior of the world. Jesus, too, came out of the place of death as Savior of the world. As with Joseph, his brethren meant it for evil, but God used it for good to save much people alive, as it says in Genesis. 
Much like with Christ, they meant it for evil, but God used it for good to give eternal life. Joseph was used to bring salvation to the earth as Christ uh, was used to bring eternal salvation to the entire world. Joseph, being exhausted, also put in motion the action that one day would bring his brethren bowing down before him. As is the action of the, of the exalted, resurrected Christ. It put in motion that one day Israel will bow down before him. Now we come to his defense of today. He's going to answer the charge. If you notice, there's three distinct sections. He deals with Moses. He transitions to his defense of the law and then his defense of the temple. How he is not a blasphemer of any of them. And each of them he points out, out here, the one who's in agreement with Scripture is him. They're the ones who are disobeying it right now and they don't even see it. He was accused in, six, in, in chapter 6, verse 11 of speaking against Moses and part of his charges. He starts off by going through the history of Moses and using that. Moses' life, of course, had three time periods. We all know that. His time of learning in Egypt and then his time of learning humility in the, in the wilderness and then learning uh, to serve as God's man for the last 40 years. He's described as a man that is lovely in the sight of God, educated or in the wisdom and the ways of Egypt, a man of power and words and deeds. Remember when Moses was born, there was a law in place because of the population explosion that Israel had in, in the land of Goshen, that all the male children that were born would be thrown into the river. They're to be killed. They're to be drowned. Moses' parents hid him three months. Then they did put him in the water in that ark and, it, and God's sovereignty is in place. Pharaoh's daughter finds him. They even get his mother to help, uh, help raise him. And he is raised in Pharaoh's household. And he, he goes over this. He's showing, one, his belief in Moses, his understanding of Scripture. I mean, he's standing up and he's going through the law in front of the Sanhedrin. And then he brings up an incredibly important point about the life of Moses. That when Moses was 40 years old, while trying to deliver one of his brethren, he kills an Egyptian when defending him. I want you to look at those verses here, a couple of verses here in verse 25 in our text. Because it's important what Stephen is doing right now. He's going through the history of Moses. 24, he refers to when he was defending one of his brethren, that an Egyptian was killed. Now, this gives us, God gives us new revelation as to that event right here in this chapter. This is what Moses thought. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. Verse 26. And the next day he shewed himself unto them as they strove. And one would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do you wrong one to another? Now he's playing peacemaker. He's peacemaker. He's defender one day. Now he's playing peacemaker. Does it remind you of anybody? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst kill the Egyptian yesterday? 
So here what we have, Stephen now brings out a particular area of, uh, or event in Moses' life, I should say, where Moses is rejected of his brethren. Moses thought they would see him as a deliverer. Moses now, at 40 years old, he, he's now come to the understanding, these are my brethren, look what's happening to them. He sees the bondage that they're in. An event arises in Moses already understanding the sovereignty of God in his own life and the position that he's been put in in Egypt. He might not understand all the ways how, but he realizes, I'm the key to their deliverance. Look where I'm at. And so in defending one of them, the Egyptian gets killed. The next day, he heads in. Two, two of, of his brethren are fighting. He plays peacemaker. What's going on? Why are you guys striving with each other? And, and one of them, in arrogance, shoves Moses, who, by the way, keep in mind, is a prince in Egypt at this time. Shoves Moses and says, you know, who do you think you are? You're gonna, you think you're a judge over us or something? You're going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? And here he is. Was Again, like Moses said there, what he knew was this. He thought they would understand. They didn't see it. They were wanting freedom from, from this bondage that they're asking God. And yet, here is one of their brethren in a position to do just that. He's rejected. Stephen covers this rejection. Moses flees into the wilderness, fearing Pharaoh would kill him. There, of course, he marries the poor. He has two sons. He's there 40 years. Angel of the Lord appears unto him in this burning bush encounter that he has, which is just incredible. And the Lord speaks to him while he's there. And you can just imagine as it describes the trembling of Moses. I mean, what, what an amazing encounter that's happening to him right now. And he lets him know, I'm going to be sending you back to Egypt to deliver my people. I've heard their groanings, I've heard them, and now it's time to deliver them. Moses then recounts how God brought them out. As you go down, verse 36, he brought the, verse 36, he brought them out. After that, he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and the wilderness 40 years. So here's Moses that through, to get them to the promised land, it brings up all the different wonders that happened, the ten plagues, of course, in Egypt that they all witnessed. To the most incredible to me, the crossing of the Red Sea. Really, I cannot wait to watch that in heaven. You know it's on DVD or you can download. I don't know what it's going to be like in heaven. But I want to watch that YouTube clip of crossing the Red Sea. Of a wall of water on each side. They witnessed it. They crossed over on dry ground. Don't forget what's leading them. A pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. They're going to end up getting water out of a rock. They're going to get fed every day from God, manna from God, until they get to uh, um, the promised land. Incredible. So he's bringing this up because, again, once again, he's going to show the nation's rejection. How it's a pattern. How what took place with Christ is nothing new. And they had better open their eyes and see it. Because this isn't just Moses. This just isn't Abraham. This just isn't Joseph. This is the Lord God Almighty. This was Jesus Christ. The Son of God in the flesh now that they've rejected. 
and he reminds them directly. He refers to Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse uh, 15 and verse 37, that this Moses, which said unto the children of Israel, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me, him shall ye hear. Could you just imagine when, when Saul is hearing this? He's already heard him in the synagogue. Remember, this is going to lead to the conversion of, of the man who's going to be the most important in the New Testament. A, a man who will, when he, when he says in Philippians, that uh, um, uh, for to me to live is Christ, he's the one that actually meant it and lived it. It wasn't a Sunday school verse to him. Christ was his life. And by the way, look, I always bring up when I'm preaching, when I'm going through Paul's epistles, look where he always shows that statement and where it's not even necessary, like in Colossians chapter 3. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear. He uses it because he was his life. That man is hearing these words right now. He's hearing Stephen go through the, the, the Pentateuch, the Old Testament, from Abraham and Joseph and now Moses. And in every time, he is making a case that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And they are the rejectors. You know, you, you know the conviction is hitting him, as well as others. Is this true? Have I been wrong? Is he right? And you know, Paul's mind... He's trying to figure out where the guy's wrong. But he can't. Paul has something, Saul has something that most of those men in the Sanhedrin don't have, though. He genuinely desires truth. The others simply wanted their position. So even if they hear truth, they can ignore it. So anyhow, he goes to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. This verse pointing, uh, 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 pointing uh, uh, talking about Jesus Christ. Now, keep this in mind. He did this with Joseph and he's doing it with Moses. He's demonstrating how even Moses' life typified the life of Jesus Christ. Moses was a deliverer from among his own people. So was Jesus Christ. Moses came down from a palace to a role of a slave to rescue slaves. So did Jesus Christ. Moses offered himself and was rejected. So was Jesus Christ. Moses left Israel to go into a Gentile land and have a family. Jesus left Israel to raise up a seed among Gentiles. That's us right now. Moses came back a second time to redeem his people and lead them to the promised land. Jesus will come back a second time and lead his people to the promised land. Again, even the history of Moses is like the foreshadowing of the history of Jesus. So Stephen is, is, is proving now the case, I am not a blasphemer of Moses. I'm the one who believes in him. And then from there he transitions, verse 38, to the law. He will now answer the charge of the law. He's answered about God, he's answered now about Moses, and now he has to answer the charge of the law. That's 38 down through 44, and then he switches to the temple. Again, these are all the charges that you looked at were given against him. He's just going right in order. <clears throat> Verse 38. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in Mount Sinai with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. He's going right to the law. To whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust uh, from them and in their hearts 
returned back again unto, into Egypt, saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us, for as this Moses was brought us out of the land of Egypt, we will not what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Molech and of the star of your God Remphan, figures which you made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Let's stop there. So here he's answering the charge, showing he certainly does believe in the law. It's not going against it. He shows his belief in the word of God and the law of God. He calls them the oracles of God. An oracle. It's a command, a statement from God, word from God, declaration from God, divine, authoritative uh, uh, revelation. He's saying, I understand that what Moses gave us was directly from God. I'm not blaspheming. That's what I believe. He says it's living because he knows it is the very word of God. This isn't unlike that amazing verse in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is quick, alive, and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. He understands what he's dealing with. He's he's, he's not of the liberal theology of his day that questions the word of God. He believes it. Again, he saw the law of God as it truly was, the word of God. He is telling him by this statement, he sees it as divine. That it was, in fact, spiritual revelation from heaven, that he is no blasphemer of the law. He doesn't have some low view of it. He knows God is the author. But then, like he did with Moses, he turns it and brings about their own rejection of the law. He reminds him the events that took place there in the wilderness. How there at the, very, at the very foot of Sinai was when Israel's journey into idolatry began. And by the way, it stays with them. Exactly how this verse says. When you look at the history of the nation of Israel, from this time, right here in the wilderness, they stayed in a form of idolatry one way or another until they came out of Babylon. They head into the promised land. Did they drive out all, all, the, all, all, all the, that they were supposed to? No, they did not. And that led to idolatry. You see it throughout popping up again and again and again and again. It's not till, just as it says here, till after Babylon that we no longer see that take place in the nation of Israel. He reminds him of that, of what took place, how, how they're right there... Keep it in context of him preaching. He just went through how they went through the Red Sea, all that they witnessed. And he says, in these very same people, weeks later, Aaron, we don't know what happened to Moses. Let's make a God. Come on, we saw this in Egypt. We need to make a calf. And of course, we know the devil's power. Then we go back to Exodus. You can read about that. You can see the, even the satanic influence that was there. But, of course, a lot of this, the influence came from, uh, 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 from Israel. They, they had worshipped the, 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 the bull gods. Uh, who, what were their names? I can't remember their names now. One starts with an A, one starts with an M. That's good enough for now. That's all I got. So I can remember. One starts with an A, one starts with an M. They believe they're the incarnation of the sun god. And so this is what they're actually sort of going back to. That's what he talked They went back to Egypt in their hearts. 
They just witnessed these amazing miracles. And they're going against one of the very crucial commands. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven image. Verse 42 is much like Romans chapter 1, isn't it? Then God turned and gave them up to worship those seven. Again, that continued through Babylon just like it says. And at the conclusion of verse 43 there. That's a dangerous place to be. When, because of your hardened, stiff-necked heart, constantly trying to, or, or not willing to submit to the truth that God gives you. Listen, you, you will get to a place, as, as, as I put it this way since I've been here going back to 2015. You will eventually get to a place where God will in fact remove the roadblocks that he has set up in your life to protect you. That day will come. You don't want that. So Stephen points out their idolatry. From the very start in the wilderness, that continued on even into their occupation of the promised land, all the way to the time they went into Babylon, into the Babylonian captivity. And it's not till and, and they know that. They know that's their history. From there, he answers the charge against the temple. I'll cover this quickly. I, I, I see the time. So now he transitions. He has to answer this. This is what he was asked to address. Verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, and he had pointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion uh, uh, which he had seen. Again, he's showing his knowledge and his respect and, and his understanding for what the tabernacle and the temple are for. Which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David, whom found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. How be it? This is the strong verse. He's doing the same pattern he's done the entire time. He says, here's my respect. I know why we have it. Verse 48. How be it, the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 66. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hands made all these things? In his defense of the temple, he said, listen, I understand that. I understand the history behind it. I know that God went to Moses. He had him build the tent. That's what we mean by tabernacle. It was, it was a, mobile, a, a, a mobile place of worship, a mobile place for their sacrifices. They had it in the wilderness. They moved. They had the tabernacle. That was used all the way until the time of Solomon. David, of course, wanted, he references that. David wanted to build the house. He said, I, I, I want to build a house for my God. I want him out of the tent. I, I, want, I want the temple. And God said, no, no, it's not you. You're a man of war. Your son will build it, though. So Solomon builds the temple. But he brings out a very important point in verse 48. You see, their view of the purpose of the temple in this pseudo-Judaism that came into existence uh, um, is improper. One commentator, I, I like his wording. I, I, I'll quote him. I like one phrase he gave on what happened to him. 
Let me see if I can find it in my notes. He said this. He said, instead of referring to the temple, instead of it being about a place of God's presence, it became a prison for God's presence. I thought, yeah, that's, that's about right. So he gives a strong statement in verse 48 and 49, quoting Isaiah chapter 66, that Stephen is pointing out. He said, listen, you forget that God is not confined to this temple. You're wrong and you know it. We're dealing with the creator, the almighty God. He's not just sitting in the temple. He allowed his presence and his glory to come there in the tabernacle and the temple. But I assure you, God is much bigger than the house you built. They place too much importance on the temple itself. Remember, going back to 1 Kings chapter 8, at the, at the dedication of the temple, Solomon's own words warned against this, as well as the prophets. They protest against the idea of thinking that God was confined to the temple. This is at the, at the blessing of it, to remind them, God is not confined to this temple. They made the case to remember that, that, uh, uh, that spiritual worship of God, that he was vastly, infinitely beyond any building. Again, their focus became about the temple instead of the God of the temple. Do we do that just a little bit in our circles today with things? Forgetting what's most important? I mean, I mean, really, there are so many people that can get obsessed with ministry and church... They forget about the God that they're serving. That doesn't mean, by the way, get all liberal and just jump out of church. Well, I understand what it's all about. No, you don't. If that's your attitude, you don't. You're using that as an excuse to feed your flesh. Ephesians 4 is still there. It's still true until Christ returns. We need the local church for the perfecting of the saints. But it's not God. It's to help us and draw us closer to God. Don't worship the ministry you have or the church you have. We worship God. Again, their focus became the temple and the building and not God. This is something they all needed to hear. They were more interested in how they worshiped at the temple, at the temple and their traditions and their rituals, more than any real, genuine relationship with the Creator. Stephen's pointed out, by the way, think what he's doing here. I mean, I mean, think what they know in their own history. That the temple has been temporal. The tabernacle was there, it was gone because they built the temple. That didn't last too long. Solomon's temple gets destroyed. Zerubbabel builds one. When they come out of Babylonian captivity. It's not nearly the same. They even weep when they see it, knowing this is not what we had. That, that takes, has some destruction take place. You have Herod then modifies it. You have that destroyed now in A.D. 70. You can get such a, a wrong, myopic view of God that you miss what he's all about. I was Catholic. They actually believed in transubstantiation that somehow the wine and the wafer became the body and blood of Christ. Are you kidding me? How many have ever, ever read the book 50 Years in the Catholic Church? I would recommend it. It was written in the 19th century by a converted priest. He was a priest for 50 years. And he did, the biggest doctrine that really he struggled with the entire time was that doctrine. He was a young priest. And he was with a senior priest who was out of there taking care of him. He was eyesight was going. And, 
and uh, wasn't able to do much. And he was helping them out, and they were doing a mass together, just the two of them. And, and he describes this thing, what had happened, and he adjusted his miracle blessing on the wafer. Boom, it's the body of God. All right? And he dropped the wafer. A rat runs up, grabs the wafer, and eats it. And he said, he just stood there looking at that. The senior priest next to him starts crying, bawling. And he said, I just remember thinking, there's no way that's the body of God. There's just no way. You see, it's just amazing how they believe that. But man, that, we can get so twisted around things. That's what was happening here in, in Judaism in regards to the temple. So Stephen was pointing all these things out. He says, I understand God ordered the construction. He went to Moses and said, build the tabernacle. He went to David and Solomon, build the temple. However, as he points out, God is not confined to your building. He's bigger than your buildings. And they were the ones blaspheming God by perverting the real purpose of the temple. And again, I, I firmly believe that what he is doing right here, where those 20,000 are now realizing, you know what? We don't have to worship right here. We don't. Because we're not going to be seeing him doing it anymore. And then as he concludes, and I'm done, 51 through 53, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. Think of the boldness this man's speaking with. Think of this. He's calling, just before we move on from that statement, just think about what what he is telling them. He's speaking to the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the nation. The high priest is present. I, I don't know that I can think of a greater insult to give them than calling them uncircumcised in heart. And ears. You do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, which he just made the case time and time again, using the law they claimed he didn't, they said he was blaspheming, to demonstrate the nation's rejection time and time again of truth. He said, which of the fathers have not your fathers, which of the prophets, excuse me, have not your fathers persecuted? And they slain them which shewed before the coming of the just one, whom ye have been now the betrayers and the murderers. Who have received the law by the dispensation of angels and have not kept it. Does he finish strong? He said, basically what he's saying is this as he finished the message, just in case you didn't get this. Let me make this clear. I'm not the rejecter. You are. And you are the murderers of the Son of God. Pretty strong finish. There's also a man that was listening there. Saul. He cannot resist the wisdom with which he speaks. And we'll see more about that, man, when we get into chapter 9. Let's go ahead and bow our head and close our eyes. Now, first, let me ask this. I know from visitors, I think we just have the missionary family that's here, but maybe this is something you've been struggling with here lately, and I don't even know about it. Say, Pastor, please pray for me. I am not certain that I've genuinely been converted. I really don't know that heaven is my home. 
Maybe that's been bothering you. Say, Pastor, please, I need you to pray for me. Would you just put your hand up and let me see it? Just put your hand up and let me see it. All right, Christian. Stephen is an incredible man. What made him amazing, though, what empowered him, was not his own intellect. It was his submissiveness to God. Opposite of the men that he was speaking to at the Sanhedrin. A man who, when he heard truth, responded to it. Did not try and, justif- did not try and justify his own actions and dismiss it. There's things that God worked on your heart. You come and pray. If there's other needs in your life or something you need to pray about, certainly come and pray. Father in heaven, please bless this invitation, Lord. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Turn to page 571. If you need to come and pray, you come and pray.